0: It is good, good indeed, to end this day in evening worship. Let us together hear the word of God, the call to worship tonight, which is from the book of Psalms, chapter 145. Psalm 145, verses 10 to 12. This is God's word. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Amen. Please now take up your hymnals as we together give praise to God as we sing hymn number 16. Praise the Lord, ye heavens adore him. Number 16. If you're able, please stand to sing. You will please remain standing and turn to hymn number 306 Praise waits for thee in Zion. 306. Please be seated.
1: And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty and eternal God, we seek to take up the great exhortation of the psalmist this evening, even as was read to us in our call to worship, that we would join our voices with all of the created order to give thanks to You, O Lord, and in particular, O Lord, as Your people, as the saints of God, we seek to bless Your great and holy name. We speak of You and the glory and majesty of Your triune being. We speak of Your works and ways, O Lord, in creation and in providence and supremely in redemption. And we praise the great God who does all things well. And so it is, O Lord, we are glad to be found here this evening even here as a company of Your people gathered, O Lord, even with one another, as a professing community of the people of God, that we might give to You that which is Your due and Yours alone. Our Father, we come again to confess our sins, the sins of this day, the sins even since last we were gathered in this way this morning. We pray that You would forgive our sins of word and thought and deed, sins of commission and omission, O Lord, have mercy upon us, not for any good thing that resides in us by nature, but for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. We pray, O Lord, look upon Him and see, O Lord, the merits of His completed work in our place both as probation keeper fulfiller of all righteousness and as the great penalty peer even in the si- in the place of sinners like us and so we pray for his sake o lord forgive our sins and then o lord we give you thanks for all of your goodness and mercy today we are thankful for your gifts and blessings temporal and spiritual we are thankful that you hear our prayers that You are the great provider of Your people. Indeed, as we were thinking this morning, that You are that bread of life which has come down from heaven. And as You, O Lord, provide physical bread for our bodies day by day, You also, O Lord, are that spiritual food and nourishment that even feeds our soul unto eternal life. And for this, we give You thanks. Lord, then we come with our prayers of evening intercession. We pray for this world in all of its need. We pray for those troubled parts of the world where there is strife and warfare. We pray, have mercy, O Lord. We ask that You would restrain the hands of evil men. And we pray, O Lord, that You might be pleased to bring not only larger measures of civil order and peace, But in the midst through those temporal blessings, O Lord, you would have your gospel to advance, even in parts of the world, O Lord, where there is great opposition and where there is great resistance to you, your Christ, your gospel, and your church. We pray, have mercy, O Lord. As we think of that, O Lord, we think of your persecuted church throughout the world in many different parts and places, in many different regions, In many different countries. Yet, O Lord, You have maintained a light of witness in these dark places. We pray for those saints, and we ask that You would sustain them, even in the midst of great persecution, great trial, perhaps separated, O Lord, from other believers, imprisoned in isolation in human terms, but never separated from You. Lord, be their strength this evening, Grant them great boldness and courage to make the good confession, even as their master did of old. And grant them at last, O Lord, to be those who are seen to be vindicated for who they are, servants of the great King and those, O Lord, that You have called. And You will demonstrate, even on that last great day, that they are more than conquerors, even through their Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, then we pray for our nation. We ask that You'd have mercy upon us even as we pass through the particular times and the particular providence and circumstance which You have appointed for us in our day and generation. We pray for our nation during election season that You would have mercy and that You would grant even under common grace, O Lord, that men would not simply look to themselves And to their own abilities, to their ideas and policies and their uh, solutions. We pray, O Lord, whether it be those in office seeking to remain in office, whether it be those who aspire to office, whatever the individual circumstances be, O Lord, at each branch and level of government, we ask that you would have mercy upon them and grant each one to bow the knee to the sovereign God of heaven, the one who raises. And the one who brings down, have so mercy upon us and our land, we pray. And then, our Father, again, we come to the needs of our own assembly. We remember those who cannot be with us, those who are sick. We ask that You'd have mercy upon them, minister to them. We pray by Your Spirit again this evening. We remember those kept by mercy and necessity. We pray that You would be their sufficient portion this evening. Lord, whatever circumstances uh, we find ourselves in as Your people here, those known and unknown, Lord, we cast ourselves upon You, and we know that You are the God of all sufficient grace, and so we pray, hear our prayers. Father, then we ask that now as we turn to Your Word, that You would come and that You would speak to us. We pray, O Lord, that You would send Your Spirit We pray that He would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. We pray that He would illumine the darkness of our minds. We pray, O Lord, that He would come and do that sovereign work that only He can in saving sinners and even in sanctifying the saints. Lord, as we read Your Word and as we later hear it proclaimed, come, we pray, and come and speak for we are here to hear you. Hear our prayers then. Forgive our sins, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the consecutive reading of God's Word in the Old Testament, we turn again this evening to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 89. This evening we are commencing to read at verse 19, and we will be reading through verse 37. So, Psalm 89, commencing to read at verse 19 and reading through verse 37. This psalm is entitled, A Maskell of Ethan, the Ezraite. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy Word. Psalm 89 at verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish His offspring forever and His throne as the days of the heavens. If His children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Amen. And thus far, God's holy Word. Please be seated. And now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Our sermon this evening will begin an exposition of verses 6 through 24, but for the sake of context and continuity, we're going to begin to read from the very first verse of chapter 4. So, Ezra chapter 4 and reading verses 1 through 24. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Ezra 4 at verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to Him ever since the days of Esarhadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us, In building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabael and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susar, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tributes, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, Therefore, we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why this city was laid waste we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rim, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, The letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, When the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God endures forever. We have been looking at an account of the opposition that occurred within a year of the return of the exiles from Babylon. We began to look at that last Lord's Day evening, verses 1 through 5 of Ezra chapter 4. This account was written almost a century later after the event itself, around the time of 440 B.C. That was the time of Ezra and the time of Nehemiah, by which time a couple of generations had come and gone, and yet Jerusalem is still trying to build the city defences. As we come to the start of our text this evening, Ezra 4 verse 6, we find here, as we would call it, a fast-forwarding from verses 1 through 5, a fast-forwarding of half a century approximately to the period of King Ahasuerus. The opposition that the Jews experienced in the time of Cyrus, mid-530s BC, returned again during the reign of Ahasuerus. That was approximately 486 to 465 BC. It didn't stop once Ahasuerus had come and gone. It continued during the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra 4 verse 7. Now, we may not know all of our Persian kings uh, uh, very, very well, um, but we probably know Artaxerxes better than others because Artaxerxes is the Persian king who was king during the time of Nehemiah, when we start that book. Nehemiah was cupbearer to Artaxerxes uh, around the time of mid-440 BC. And so, uh, as we will come, Lord willing, to the book of Nehemiah, but if you know it at least in um, brief outline... You will know that in the time of Nehemiah, he describes these very circumstances. He describes threat of physical confrontation for the Jews in Jerusalem. So much so, uh, we get that famous picture, don't we, that they built with trowel in one hand and sword in the other. Um, Perhaps you've heard of that famous publication in our own day, The Sword and Trowel. It comes from this very picture in the time of uh, Nehemiah. Building with one hand and defending with the other. Nehemiah 4 verse 17. Now the other thing to note by way of introduction, and this is uh, um, just passing interest, but we will note it as we move on this evening. Um, When we come to verse 8 of Ezra chapter 4, right up to chapter 6 verse 18 the text is actually written in the original language in something uh, unusual in the scriptures normally we think of all of the old testament in hebrew Uh, most of it is Um, but there are some small texts and passages that are written in another language that is aramaic Um, and so if you want to be uh, correct uh, when people say what was the bible written in in english languages hebrew yes Greek, yes, that's what most of us would say, but also a little bit of Aramaic, and this is one of those passages uh, here. Why? Because um, the Aramaic was the language that was employed in formal Persian documents, so the letter written and the letter received back, um, they certainly would have been in Aramaic because their formal communication in the Persian Empire. Well, then, what do we find as we come to this uh, reasonably lengthy text in verses 6 through 24? Well, here this text outlines the historical events associated with the continued opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, certainly, um, and also to the rebuilding of the city, which point to timeless lessons for God's people facing opposition. Uh, We have particular history here, real people, real places, real times, but nevertheless, the lessons from this was not just for them. It's also been for God's people down through the generations, uh, even to the 21st century AD and where we sit here this evening. So we're going to look at two things this evening. First of all, continued opposition. And then, secondly, practical lessons. So, continued opposition and practical lessons. So, first of all, continued opposition. And in this, we look at our whole passage this evening, verses 6 through 24. Now, from the perspective of the first readers of Ezra, a century of trouble has already passed. So, you remember the things of which um, is written here at the beginning of chapter 4. They're not um, recorded in what we call the book of Ezra till some considerable time later. And so, the first readers of the book, this has been their experience for some considerable time. It didn't just start yesterday or last week or last month. And so, from the initial opposition that started, you remember, a year, just a year after the Jews returned from Babylon, Ezra 4 verse 4. To the opposition mentioned a decade and a half later, when Darius assumed the throne, Ezra 4 verse 5. Now to the opposition half a century later in the time of Ahasuerus, Ezra 4 verse 6. And finally to the continuing opposition that occurs and occupies the very bulk of Ezra chapter 4 verses 7 through 23. Um, whatever period and phase of those things, what we have here, as one commentator, one commentator calls it, trouble dogged the Jews at every step, end quote. Slightly different circumstances, slightly different uh, who was in charge in Persia at the time, but the basic underlying circumstance was the same. Trouble, persecution, opposition dogged the Jews at every step. And what emerges through all of this time is what we might call a woeful story of little faith on the part of the people of God in the face of this relentless opposition. In the first campaign, the Samaritans and their allies, you remember, as we looked at last week hindered the rebuilding effort of the temple by engaging in intimidation at home in Jerusalem. And you remember they hired their lobbyists, their campaigners, professionals in Persia. They started a whispering campaign, you remember, against the Jews in what we might call the corridors of power at the heart of the empire. And then for about 16 years, down to the succession of Darius, 522 B.C., this double strategy, harassment at home, whispering campaigns in the heart of the capital, that proved to be a very effective strategy for these enemies of Judah and Benjamin. And the rebuilding work on the temple ground to a halt, as we read in verse 24. Well, history continues to move on, and another king comes to the throne in Persia. He is Hazarus, and the people didn't stop. Just because there was a new king in Persia, they didn't go, well, we'd we better not continue here as the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. And so they uh, trouble this new ruler, and of course, it's not hard for us to uh, imagine Uh, new king is eager to establish himself, eager to have a reputation that people would respect. And so, it proves that it's a good strategy of these enemies again uh, to uh, seek to oppose the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, We read of that in verse 6. But in the Lord's sovereign providence, that attempt seems not to have been very successful. It seems to come to nothing very quickly, and the story moves on in the biblical narrative. No more is said concerning that. We fast-forward again, half a century, 50 years, um, we're going at pretty breakneck speed this evening, but uh, we might just pause to think about these timescales, you know, when you sort of say 15, 16 years for some of our younger people, or maybe longer than you've even been alive yet. Um, then we say half a century. Well, for a lot of us, that's most of our lives, if not all of our lives. But that's what's being recorded here, history, real history, but in very summarized, condensed form. So, half a century passes. Um, Hazarus is assassinated, Nothing, uh, something that was not uncommon in the ancient world. His murderer happened to be his brother. Artaxerxes Uh, comes to the throne, he's Artaxerxes I, and he takes the throne in 465 B.C. in Persia, having murdered his brother Ahasuerus. And it's to this king that we have this letter sent by three individuals. They signed it. Um, They were part of the Persian administration, servants of the king, Bishlam, um, Mithradath, Tabe'el. It was an accusatory letter, wasn't it? Uh, it was seemingly laying out charges. What did they charge the Jews with uh, before the king? Well, they accused the Jack- Jews of tax avoidance, among other things, verses 7 through 10. Um, if you look at the letter itself, Uh, verses 11 through 16 um, it's a very interesting combination of uh, flattery of the king trying to get him on their side um, of suggestion and innuendo there's there's not a really any proof here of these charges but it's suggestive you know you've got to be worried about these these jews you know there's a lot of history of their sedition and rebellion um And as we might say, these enemies were very astute politically. They knew how to maneuver in these worlds to get the king to kind of pay attention to what they were saying. Verses 11 through 16. Now, we might just pause for a moment and say, you know, was this of so significance that the king would take any notice of this? Um, Historically, we are told um, that Uh, The revenues from um, Judah at this time um, was probably around 5% or less of the total tax revenues of the Persian Empire. So it certainly wouldn't have been the end of the world, even if all of that had not come into the tribute coffers uh, in Persia. Um, But it's the principle, you see. It's the principle um, to suggest that any part of the empire would rebel and uh, not pay tribute. Well, you see, you don't really want that to start, do you? Because it might be 5% today, but then that becomes 10% tomorrow because somebody else says, aha, well, you know, they tried and got away with it, so why don't we try it? And very soon, what they're suggesting to Artaxerxes, this may not be a big thing today, but if you don't deal with this, you know, if you allow them to do this, even though they weren't necessarily doing it, but the suggestion is made, then look out, king, because you may not have an empire tomorrow. That's what they are basically saying to the king. So as one commentator puts it, he says, all these charges were purposely designed to create unrest, to make the king uneasy and to make him feel vulnerable at the beginning of his reign. And so, the king was further urged to research the history of Jerusalem and to find that what they are suggesting is not something brand new. Uh, search the annals, they say to him, you'll find this is the case in the past. And, um, you know, what they say in those kinds of ways where they say, well, you know, if that's the behavior from the past, it's going to be the same again. That's what they're doing here. Um, well, the king then um, makes inquiry, it certainly gets his attention uh, for sure, and so the outcome of all of this is the paid officials of Persia, Rehum and Shimshai are um, named here specifically, are ordered by the king to spread word that the rebuilding must stop, and must stop immediately. Verses 17 through 23. Now the stoppage referred to there, in verse 23 again, corresponds with the news from Jerusalem that opens the book of Nehemiah. That's why these two books are so um, closely tied together, Um, not just in terms of their um, timeline and it's in the same era and so on. But when we read at the beginning of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah hears a report. From Jerusalem from His brothers, what does He hear? He hears the report that in Jerusalem the city walls remain in their original condition, that nothing really had been done to um, bolster the defenses of the city following the Jews' return from exile almost a century before. So, the whole thing fits together, you see. A hundred years almost has gone by here, Nehemiah 1 verses 2 through 3. And we'll come to this more, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, but we just note in passing this evening, um, that makes what happens right at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah a very remarkable thing. You know, sometimes we just read the book of Nehemiah in isolation, and we say, okay, well, here's the king, and uh, here's Nehemiah's cupbearer, and uh, he seems to be on reasonable relations, um, and uh, the king is you know, benevolent to Nehemiah and says, well, what would you have me do and what can I do? And, you know, he, he makes a favorable decree. Um, what we've got to remember is that's the same king who issued the decree to say, stop all work in Jerusalem. These are rebellious subjects and uh, this must stop, enforce it. It's that king who Nehemiah is dealing with And so we see the great sovereign power of God who holds the hearts of even kings in his hands, such that then Nehemiah is the means, as we call it, the instrument that God uses to change the king's mind in a most remarkable way. He'd ordered all work in the city to stop until a decree is made by me, he says. And that pretty well says it's going to stop. And it's probably not going to start anytime soon, if at ever at all. And yet God in his time, in his purpose as Nehemiah, to be in the place of appointment. And uh, we'll come to that in the way that Artaxerxes changes his mind. Sends Nehemiah then to the city to engage again and, and start the rebuilding. Particularly now in terms of the city walls and their defenses. Well, then after verse 23, we jump back. Now, again, sometimes um, some Christians have some trouble with this. Uh, they kind of read text as if they all are just sequential, you know, year to year, century to century. Um, sometimes Hebrew narrative is not written that way. So, verse 23 um, is finishing with Artaxerxes, stop the work, when we get to verse 24 that isn't something just flows chronologically in the timeline verse 24 it goes back to the time of darius that's why i cited it a little earlier when we were talking about sias darius ahasuerus artaxerxes so the stopping of the work verse 24 is in the time of uh, darius um, the stopping of the work under artaxerxes is in verse 23. well history lesson. Um, We don't come to church just to have a history lesson. Uh, We don't preach sermons just to have a history lesson. But the history is the foundation for what we want to think about this evening. Um, Some people might say, well, so what, right? So what for all of this history? Good to know it. I'm informed. Um, But so what? What are we meant to learn from all of this sitting in the 21st century in California, Placerville, here this evening. Well, that brings us then in the second place to the practical lessons of all of this. And uh, I want to take some time, Lord willing, this evening and next Lord's Day evening to look at these practical lessons so we don't um, just skip over them. We spend time in the history for the foundation, and then we will spend time appropriate so that we can say, so what are we to learn from this? Because Ezra 4 is more than just a lesson in church history. It is that, but it's more than that. The author here, both the human author and the ultimate author of all Scripture, which is God the Holy Spirit, is teaching both the first readers and every reader in between even to us this evening, is teaching us a lesson, a lesson in what we might call realism, what really is. The first readers of Ezra, as I've said, in around 440 B.C., almost a century after the Jews had come back from Babylon, were being given here a lesson in church history in the form of what was reality for them. It was a century of opposition. Opposition. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, It is as though the author was saying to his first audience, you see the trouble you are facing right now. Well, it has been like this for the past past 100 years. No, in fact, closer to 200 years, since before the exile into Babylon. Time and again, your fathers and grandfathers experienced trial after trial after trial." So, this is the first practical lesson of what we see here. It has never been easy for the people of God in this fallen world. It is an arena, as we might say, this world of opposition to God, His Christ, His gospel, and therefore His church. If you prefer it in New Testament language, we talked about this this morning in Sunday School Hour, Acts 14, verse 22, what does Paul say? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This was true for the Jews through this hundred years since they'd returned from Babylon. It would remain true down to the preaching of the apostles. It remains true to where we are today. Therefore, we need to learn that lesson. In the face of many who suggest to us in days gone by and continuing today, that just come to Jesus and everything will be great. Great in the sense of everything will be easy, everything will be prosperous for you, you can ride to heaven, Uh, without many, if any, difficulties really at all, just come to Jesus and you live your best life now, right? Is that what the Scripture says? It's not, is it? But how so often we can be very sentimental? We sentimentalize the past and we take some of those um, circumstances, And we expect our own lives to measure up to the supposed blessings that other believers have had, and we think that they were normative for them. It was their everyday experience, and certainly we wish it were normative for us. Days when we have no difficulties, no opposition, Um, the whole world has become Christianized. Nobody would want to oppose. God, is Christ, His gospel, or His church. It was not so then, and it is not so now. In reality, most Christians experience trials and sufferings as the norm of the Christian life. Therefore, knowing that is, as we might call it, an inoculation against an expectation which the Bible never presents to us. Knowing this prevents us from distorting our expectations, because if you have that expectation, when it doesn't happen, guess what? Christians very quickly become so disillusioned. Well, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for the prosperity. Come to Jesus, and everything will be great. And now I'm suffering. That wasn't what I thought I was going to get. And it inoculates us against frustration when those expectations are not fulfilled. So first lesson, it has never been easy for the people of God. They must face opposition. Fight the good fight of faith, right? is what Paul tells us. Second lesson. The first readers of Ezra were to learn the lesson that relatively long periods of time may pass without the benefit of some extraordinary divine intervention in either providing great leadership or spiritual renewal. It's a long statement, let me say it again. The first readers of Ezra, and therefore we too, and everyone in between, As the professing community of the people of God, are to learn the lesson that relatively long periods of time may pass in the Lord's purposes without the benefit of extraordinary divine intervention, particularly in either providing great leadership in the church or some outstanding and extraordinary spiritual Renewal. Chapter 4, as we've seen, covers a period from the time of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, leaders in the rebuilding of the temple around 538, 516 B.C., to the rise of Ezra the Reformer some 60 years later, 458 B.C., to then the emergence of Nehemiah uh, probably a little over ten years later after Ezra, 445 B.C. Um, In the midst of those particular circumstances of the Lord raising up good, great even leaders, there were these large intervals of time. Uh, Some commentators note, in some cases, generations for them, because they did not live as long as we necessarily live today. So, some of these periods of time in between was a whole generation. Some Christians of the Old Testament um, were born and, were, and died without experiencing some of these great times. As one other commentator puts it, it says, um, they live in intervals of time which pass by in which relatively little happens that we would call spectacular. Um, specifically, there was no great leaders in those years. There were no great outpourings of the Spirit of God in what we would call revival. There were no unusual works of reformation, those things that we typically think of in those extraordinary times of ridding the church, of uh, false professors in their midst, um, dressing error, return, a much greater faithful return to the doctrine of the Scriptures, restoring worship as God has commanded it, um, and an evident uh, increase or greater manifestation of living the Christian life amongst the general community of the people of God in accordance with God's will for His people. And whether we think of that in terms of individual believers or whether we think about it corporately as the church, the community of such believers, um, the principle is the same. Uh, We might put it this way that um, growth in terms of greater faithfulness, conformity uh, to the will of God, uh, whether we think it in terms of individual Christians, conformity to the image of Christ, or whether we think of that in terms of churches, um, local churches, making up the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What's the principle here? Well, such growth is hardly ever uniform. It's just the same all the time, and it is rarely uninterrupted. And by that, uh, I mean to convey there are ups and downs in this, as was their experience here now, we might ask ourselves this evening, well, well, why is this? Why does this happen this way? Well, there's perhaps two reasons at least that can be noted for this. Um, one reason why this happens is there may be personal and or corporate failure and sin on behalf of God's people. So, it may be in the individual life or it may be in the church as a whole. Um, we were thinking about that some of it in our Sunday school hour, weren't we? And in the, uh, the letter to um, the church at Ephesus in the book of the Revelation, where um, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus had to say to that church, I have this against you. There was a big problem there that needed to be addressed. Um, and it, it may well be that under such circumstances, in the Lord's sovereign will and providence, there is a time of discipline, chastisement, Um, which uh, withholds some of those, uh, from our human point of view, the blessings, uh, whether it's great leadership in the church, whether it's reform of the church, whether it's great revival in the church, and so on. It may be that God needs to bring that chastisement and rebuke to His people. But other times, it may be in the sovereign will of God that He does not necessarily disclose to people in Ezra Nehemiah's time or to us in the 21st century God has his time and purpose in these things um what we do know is from uh, the closing of the canon of the Old Testament the time of Malachi until um, John the Baptist bursts on the scene there is approximately about 400 years of what's called silence there was no word from God um had God forgotten His redemptive purpose? Well, of course not. Um, well, well, why was this 400 years wait then? Why didn't He just go straight from Malachi to John the Baptist? Why didn't Jesus come at that point? Um, God does not fully disclose that, except, as the Apostle says, Galatians 4.4, 4, when the time had fully come. And what um, that is to be fully understood to mean is when God's time and purpose was right and there were to be 400 years of silence between Malachi and um, that time with the herald coming first in John the Baptist and then the incarnation of our Lord Jesus so sometimes it's just the sovereign purpose of God during which time there may well be a withholding of unusual blessing individuals or the church. So, whether it's a result of God's chastisement or His sovereign working out of His purpose, um, the effect of that is is much the same. What does that look like in the Christian life, individually and corporately? Well, it looks like what we call ordinary days, um, days of routine and repetition. But the problem for the Christian in such days is, You know, if we all live in days of extraordinary blessing, reformation, revival, um, those are not difficult days to necessarily live through. I mean, they can be uh, demanding. Uh, If you want to know anything about that, read some of the accounts of Edwards uh, during uh, the First Great Awakening here um, in the United States. And um, uh, he will speak of how almost exhausting they were Um, of of living through that, just of the demands upon um, uh, the body and the soul of a human being, of of knowing God's great blessing, of of revival. Um, But the real problem uh, when we have to pass through days that are not like that, uh, those days that are ordinary days, um, nothing extraordinary seems to go on, is that we can be tempted to resent them, despise them even. Um, Why can't God bring the extraordinary days in my day and generation? Um, Why can't I live through the days of Whitfield, or Wesley or Calvin in Geneva um, or Edwards in in New England? Um, God's answer to that, brethren, just in case you don't know what God's answer is, is because He appoints that as He pleases and not as we please. Um, If I could put it very bluntly but reverently, God would say, because I say so, that's why. I'm sovereign over those things, not you. But we are tempted then to say, but but that's not fair. why can't I have those things as other brethren have had them? Um, one commentator, wisely, pastor, scholar, reflecting on that. Um, why does God have us pass through ordinary days when not much seems to be happening except our call to faithfulness? He says, Quote, um, when we, re- he's thinking about the response of us beginning to be resentful of that and um, as the prophet Zechariah calls it the despising of the day of small things. Uh, the commentator says when we're thinking that way, quote, such a response may in fact be exactly what the Lord designs to bring about so that He points out to us how fickle and proud we are to think that we deserve what we do not, End quote. See what the problem is? we start to begin to think, well, you know, God should do that for me. I deserve to live in a day of great blessing and revival and reformation. I mean, why would God not give me that blessing? And this commentator is reflecting and saying sometimes, part of that chastisement and discipline, God has us pass through times of what we call ordinary, not very much happening, facing lots of opposition uh, without seeming God's um, a miraculous intervention uh, for us, um, that God appoints that to indeed sanctify us. As we were thinking uh, this morning in text, our brother quoted, to show that the excellency of the power is not of us, but of God. Because how so often do we so quickly think when things are going well, God is extraordinary blessing. Well, you know, we've now got this figured out. We know what the formula is. This is what we are accomplishing. So we need to think of that. Whatever case, as we start to draw to a close this evening, whether it is due to our um, failures and sins that need to be chastised by the Lord, whether it's the Lord's sovereign purpose which He doesn't fully disclose. In any case, whichever is the uh, circumstance, uh, as we see here, the length of time Uh, can be significant. And because of that, this is a hard lesson to learn. Um, You know, if we have to endure any sort of hardship, brethren, um, we prefer it be very quick, right? Very quick. And let's just get it over with, and then let's get back to what I really like to be the case. Um, But here he says, for an entire generation, One commentator says the only thing worth noting by the holy spirit in the scriptures was a story about king ahasuerus and his wife remember who that was esther in a land far far away from jerusalem when the people of god were in danger of being wiped off the face of the map end quote and so in that period there was nothing much exciting happening to to exist to continue to profess the faith to trust in the lord that he was working out his great purpose and promise was a great act of faith because that's not what you saw with your eyes Um, at that time under ahasuerus all you saw and all that's recorded in scripture um, by way of any extended history um is a Ahasuerus and the great pre- preserving of the Jews um, through Mordecai, through Esther. Um, but that's something happening far, far away from Jerusalem, right? Um, in Susa, the citadel in, in Persia. And so in such times, um, we're very tempted to exaggerate the blessings of the past and grow cynical. Can I suggest that to His brethren? Do we think that so cannot be the case for us? Grow cynical towards the present, the day of small things, and even then grow despondent about the future. Uh, That had already been the experience of the Jews, you remember, when they uh, laid the foundation of the temple. There were those already who were so exaggerating the blessings of the past. Solomon's temple, when the Lord came and manifested His presence in the Holy of Holies. But look at this now. It's not going to ever be as great as that. Cynical in the present, despondent with regard to any future, based on what I can see with my eyes today in Jerusalem. Very much... They'd already seen that, Ezra 3, verse 12, in their midst early on, uh, that scene, which of course was a fulfilling of the very words of Zechariah, um, who has despised the day of small things. Brethren, we may not live in times, as I've said, Luther, Calvin, Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, whoever is your great hero of the faith. But yet we are still not to despise the time in which God has placed us. We are not. We are to persevere and be faithful whilst God fulfills His sovereign purposes. And even if, even if, even if we live in a day of small things for all of our lives, guess what? We know, as the apostle would say, we know that we're going to participate in one extraordinary day. Will it be a day like Luther and Calvin and Whitfield and Wesley and um, Edwards? I don't know. Maybe God might grant you that. Maybe He won't. But what I do know is this. All true believers will participate in an extraordinary day that will be unlike any other. And it's coming very, very soon, the Bible says. What is that day? It's the day when the Lord Himself, Paul tells us, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then what does He tell them? Therefore, encourage one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, uh, 6 through 18, that whole passage. A day of small things. A day of small things in Placerville, California, in the 21st century, 2024. We're not to despise it, brethren. And even if it's 2025 and 2026, and wherever else you may find yourself in the providence of God. Till the very end of your life, an extraordinary day is coming which will be far greater than living in Calvin's Geneva, than being in Wittenberg when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door, when all of those great events of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, they'll pale into insignificance but you might say, so what am I to do in the meantime? And with this, we close. The Apostle James tells us, James 5, verses 7 and 8, be patient, he says. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us these lessons of your words that come from ancient history of your people often seems very distant from us both in terms of time and space and all of the other many particular differences of our cultures and yet oh lord there are lessons here that are for all of your people down through the centuries oh lord teach us we pray teach us oh lord to know these great things that you saw to teach these people of old. We pray, O Lord, that You might teach us that it has never been easy for the people of God. Deliver us from that desire to simply want lives of ease and comfort in this world. Grant us rather the great fervor and faith to fight the great fights. And teach us also, O Lord, to learn the lesson that You may call us to live in days of relatively small things, that they may last long periods of our lives, maybe all of our lives. But teach teach us patience, O Lord, to be always about the work of the Lord, knowing that that work is never in vain, and looking always upward and forward to that most extraordinary of days in which we will all participate, even when you bring all things to great consummation. Teach us then to be patient. Establish our hearts, we pray. Grant us to know the coming of the Lord is at hand. And grant in the knowledge of such things, we would encourage one another with such words. Hear our prayer, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. We sing our final hymn this evening and this Lord's Day, the church's one foundation, hymn number 270. Please rise to sing if you are able. people of God. Receive the Lord's blessing in his benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and peace.